this week's episode of the mixtape with scott i'm your host scott cunningham uh brrr, it's cold outside thanksgiving is now done and we're in the home stretch for the holidays which uh i think you know what that means you're now officially allowed to play sue fan steven's christmas album songs for christmas uh if you peaked a little bit early uh that's okay you're probably gonna be fine it's uh you're probably not gonna be on the it is technically a naughty list violation but you're probably fun so uh this week's guest um on the podcast is uh, a young assistant professor and econometrician at brandeis university research fellow at institute of labor economics uh iza named timon schwazinski uh he's an excellent young econometrician really really enjoyed reading his papers and uh i've wanted him on here because of the broader story of, uh, of causal inference, uh, as well as just getting to know team on myself. I've been, I've been on a kick reading through a lot of econometrics papers, uh, the last year that you might just sort of boil down to, uh, what's called unconfoundedness methods. Um, this is, these are methods that usually depend upon covariates for estimating treatment effects. And uh, in the history of economics, particularly going back to through Princeton industrial relations section in the seventies, there was a, uh, an economist there, labor economist named Ron Oaxaca. And uh, he had developed a uh, method for studying discrimination in labor markets as had in the same year, uh, Alan Blinder, they kind of independently came up with this method for discrimination. It was based on, a kind of decomposition method where you would take two groups, you'd look at some outcome like wages. This would be like black and white groups or men and women. Uh, you'd look at, look at their wages and uh, you see what, how much of it could be explained by the covariates and how much couldn't be explained by the covariates. And, you know, if it couldn't be explained by the covariates, then you might be able to tag it as discrimination. It, it was once, you know, I think, very, very common uh, to see people do these kinds of decompositions. It turns out, though, uh, that it is, in fact, a treatment effects estimator called regression adjustment. Pat Klein has written about it in a 2011 Papers and Proceedings. Jeff Wooldridge has written about it. Uh, and so has Timon. And um, he's written a lot about it, uh, you know, a, a decent amount about it. And it's led him to think uh, about, you know, regressions in general. Uh, basic regressions with covariates and what they mean and what are you estimating? How do you interpret the coefficient? And are we interpreting it correctly? And so on my substack, I did like three uh, substacks about Timon's uh, 2022 Review of Economics and Statistics article about OLS, uh, trying to basically come up with a simulation that would, would do it right, uh, as well as just provide some promotion of the paper and, and help people understand it. Um, but you know, it's really important because regressions with covariates are probably the single most common causal method. If you think about it, uh, probably most people, if they have anything at all relevant for causality, what do they have? They have a stats class where they learned regressions and they learned about multivariate regression. So anything we can add to helping people understand that is probably going to go a really long way. And um, so, you know, this is a part of this broader trend that you've been seeing over the last five years of uh, the regressions that you've been running 
uh, when you add in there heterogeneous treatment effects and you explicitly start modeling it in that Ruben potential outcomes framework, things don't look uh, like you thought they did. And um, so it's a really important paper. So that's the backdrop. Um, that's the backdrop of why I was thinking about having Timon. I just really wanted to talk to him about all this work he's been doing and pick his brain. Cause I didn't really see this stuff coming. You know, I've been really surprised cause I, cause I'm not an econometrician. I'm always kind of caught off guard a little bit, you know, by whether it's diff and diff, whether it's stuff with IV, whether it's like, you know, stuff like this OLS stuff, I've always been like, you know, really caught off guard. And then I just kind of dive into it and learn as much as I can. And so, um, so that's it. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Timon. I was, uh, hope you have a great week and go ahead and uh, put on some uh, Sufjan Stevens. I hope you have a good day. Okay. Well, it is my pleasure to have on the podcast someone I've been looking forward to talking to for a while. Uh, Timon Swashinsky. Did I say it right? Okay. Timon. How do I say it? Uh, so um, first name would be more like Timon. Timon. Okay. Uh, uh, and last name is super close. It's Swachinsky. Swachinsky. Um, Timon. Okay, good. All right. And then I'll, I'll, now I'll, I'll do it right. Uh, Timon. Timon, tell us, uh, your, for the sake of the listener, uh, your job title and who pays your salary. Uh, so I'm an assistant professor of economics at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's great to meet in person. I've been a big fan for a while. I've been bugging you. By great to meet you. I'm, I'm... <laughs> No, it's 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 great, and I'm I really uh, really appreciate the invitation. It's like a thrill to to see myself, you know, with uh, so many uh, really prominent people. So I'm I'm really uh, happy and thank you. Thank you for the good, invitation. good. Uh, well, when when you then one day when you're uh, one of these big prominent people, you'll say, and I and Scott Cunningham let me on. Scott Cunningham gave me my my first chance on podcast on on primetime podcasts uh world okay all right so what what's it let's start off with an icebreaker so tell me uh um what's a vacation that you've taken maybe when you were younger that um you still kind of every now and then think about uh for for whatever reason so i'd say it's it's probably uh maybe less of a single vacation than a kind of like a routine my family had for for many many years which is that uh uh, we would rent a house or a floor in a house somewhere in the mountains uh, in southern Poland, not far away from where we lived. And uh, uh, my mom and I, my mom, uh, my brother and I would like spend most of the, like much of the summer there. My dad would join us on weekends, uh, in, like two weeks or so towards the end of the summer. And we would just spend there like many, many weeks. It was like much longer than, you know, my typical adult um, vacations, much more so. And just, you know, have a very nice, relaxed summer, a lot of walks, book reading, you know, swimming in the river, hikes when I was getting older. So like a very, very nice sort of, you know, relaxed um, uh, routine that pretty much, you know, repeated every every year for for most of my childhood. Oh, wow. That was, that was the whole summer? Most of the summer, yes. Oh, so, like, no. uh, you know, definitely more than one month. Um, probably never full two months, but it could be close to that. Was there other people that would also go to that same location? Not really, no, no. So it oh. would be it would be us um, just you know renting something and you know oh. just just uh, having a very very nice relaxed time for 
for for for for for pretty long. Oh, that's just, and, and in re returning to the same place. So we basically, I was just two places uh, that you know we repeatedly would go to uh, throughout my childhood. First one, then they kind of kicked us out. Not that we were bad; we were good. Right. But like they needed it for other purposes. The, the oh. place, uh, and we we switched places. Um, uh, and you said that's because did you did you say it's because your dad was an academic? Uh, so my, my dad wasn't academic. He's a retired oh. history professor. But so when I say uh, I, I didn't say anything about my dad before, except that he was joining us on weekends and then for just a uh, you know, week or two at the end oh, of the summer. Oh, but oh, the oh. reason he was doing that rather than spending the entire summer was that he was catching up on his research over the ah, summer, yeah. as we all do. Oh, OK, so got, I, it, got it. Uh, where was this? Where, where were you all going in the summers? Um, I mean, you know, I could give you two village names in, Pol in, in, in Polish mountains, which would not say anything, uh -huh. uh, except if somebody was listening who was Polish, but they wouldn't probably know it either. But it was like, you know, I, I grew up, uh, there is this uh, city, uh, second biggest city in Poland, in, in southern Poland called Kraków, mm. uh, which is like the former capital, you know, um, you know, 16th century and earlier. So an old, uh, very old city. Um, um, and, uh, you know, it's close to the mountains. So it, it, the place we went to would be like a one, two hour drive south of, of our hometown. Wow. Of my hometown. What's up? What, so what is the beautiful parts of Poland look like? Actually, I've never been to Poland. What is it? What is it like? Well, I mean, uh, a lot of people would tell you, uh, that one of the num one of the top places to go would be my hometown actually. Really? And I know many people who would, who would like, you know, that would be wow. one of the specific places to go. It's, it's, a uh, like, I don't know, people would say sometimes it kind of resembles a little bit like a small Prague, like Prague in, in the Czech Republic. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it's, 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 a, it's a medieval, medieval old town. Um, you know, many um, old Gothic churches, um, university established in the second half of 14th century, uh, like a castle that's on top of everything, so to speak. Um, you know, very, very nice place to just, you know, spend some time. A very, very, um, you know, beautiful um, old Jewish quarter uh, that was, uh, you know, in, in disrepair when I was a kid, but then mm -hmm. sort of became like a big, uh, you know, restaurant and bar uh, center of for the whole oh. for the whole city. In a very, very, very interesting place to go to. I would say, you know, some parts of the mountains in Poland, like for example, I have this poster behind me, yeah, uh, which is uh, like the most prominent um, mountain range, a little bit further than we would go. Wow. Uh, that I think is is really beautiful. And when I went to Yosemite for the first time, I felt like um, my first so I was, I was <laughs> bottom of uh, El Capitan, and I was like looking, and I was thinking, okay, I, I really grew up in a in a in a nice place because. I don't actually think that this is, you know, so much better than than that place. I mean, I really loved Yosemite after like two days or something. I thought, okay, this is this is really something super remarkable. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But but uh, it's comparable, I think. Wow. Many places. Did you feel as a kid that you were around just something so incredibly beautiful? Did you do you you grew up? It sounds like you grew up kind of loving nature a lot. Is that am I putting words? In I, think, I, I think I did. I I kind of. It's difficult to say to what extent I appreciated uh, that it was a great place that I was growing up. I definitely felt, I mean, so my hometown is a very interesting place in the sense that um, it's um, it's full of people who are super proud about it, mm. that, you know, it's like this, this wonderful city, wonderful place and whatnot. And I think when I was growing up, when I was a teenager and I was sort of, you know, like... Uh, 
you know, being critical of things and sort of trying to distance myself from, from, you know, I don't know, things growing up and whatnot. I kind of felt for a long time, and maybe I still do that, um, you know, sometimes that level of pride is a little bit too much, meaning there are some things that maybe, you know, we're proud of that, you know, I mean, maybe we shouldn't be that proud of in the end or whatever. But the fact that it's beautiful, uh, the, 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 the place and, you know, the mountains, and I think, I think um, it's definitely not something I would, I would, uh, I would question. So I definitely had this, like, these conversations, people like, I'm, I'm, I'll be exaggerating, I'll be exaggerating a lot, but kind of, we are the center of the world, so to speak. And people didn't really mean that, but, but some were getting close. I think. Oh, wow. Wow. So your family is from Poland and have been from Poland for a long time. Like you, you, you could like go back and you just sort of know, like they've, it's not like they've ever moved there, like your grandparents or something. They've always been from there. Not, 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 not that I would know of. But then, um, pretty much my entire family, like you know, two or three generations back, were um, you know pretty poor and lived in like you know small villages, were like small farmers, so to speak. So wow. it's not like you have uh, like a long track record. Yeah. I mean, maybe you would if you went back to some of the, I don't know, like all sort of, you know, baptism books and whatever, because they oh. were, to, to the extent that I'm aware, they were all Catholic. So mm. you would have like records. Oh. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Like, like yeah. the family memory doesn't span further than like, I don't know, maybe my great grandparents. Huh. In Poland, this is completely random. It's like, but in Poland, is it? common that you know everybody sort of is from poland and then their parents are from poland I and mean, is it it's like you're around people that have just always lived in that area where you are or is it dynamic and you see lots of migration into and out of poland when i was growing up it was definitely extremely homogeneous uh no question about that and it's a legacy of world war ii uh um you know um Jewish population was murdered or or migrated after the war, and uh, mm. uh, you know the um, Ukrainian population mm. um, in the east, uh, you know the the border shifted such that most of the Ukrainian population uh, stayed in what was formerly the Soviet Union. Those who stayed within Polish borders were forcibly moved to other parts mm. of the country. The German population in the West, in the lands that were previously Germany, now it's Poland, uh, were forcibly removed to mm. what is now Germany. So yes, I mean, within within post for Polish borders, the, the population in the 1990s when I was growing up was extremely homogeneous. Mm. Um, right now it's different because, yes, Poland has been European Union for like about 20 years um there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, migration especially even before um the war in ukraine uh, mm -hmm. a lot of migration from ukraine but now now especially so but also from other parts of the world i think there is a lot of um um you know a lot of people coming coming for jobs from i think asia right now uh which is something i did not what wasn't wasn't the case at all when i was growing up i mean of course the yeah the world the world like you know in in during um the communist era uh there were like you know many student exchanges with um 
sort of, you know, countries around the world that were sort of aligned with the, you know, Eastern Bloc. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, those people would travel and sometimes they would stay after and then they would have kids. And, you know, yes, I mean, small, small numbers, very small numbers, I think, uh, when I was growing up, not now. Got it. Got it. So so your 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 father was a professor of history at the school that you end up going to college or a different school? No. No, no, I I left. So this was this is this is my first like one of my first like um, you know big sort of um, um, decisions of of doing something that that uh, was was unusual in my hometown. I left I left my hometown for college. So I went to Warsaw, the capital city. Mm. Uh, the vast majority of my friends of my classmates from from um, high school state. So I did not go. Oh, um, so he 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 retired. He was a professor in that. Uh, you know, medieval university in Krakow, oh. uh, but I did not go to college there. And they, they don't actually have, the, I mean, they do have like a department of economics now, mm. but it's not, a, it's not a place um, you would go to study economics if you uh, like really thought about it a, long, a lot of time. Because um, in Poland, they have the system, I think, uh, of like schools of economics, which is kind of like LSC-like, so to speak, Mm -hmm. um, right. like specialized universities in economics and business. And um, it's usually the best places to go to study economics in Poland. I think another choice would be the University of Warsaw, which is like the only, like I think, general university with a very strong uh, economics department. Uh, but I went to the Warsaw School of Economics. Mm, I see. Okay, great. So yeah, just now I'm piecing together. Your father's a historian, and then you're an economic historian as well as an econometrician. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if, if many economic historians would, you know, totally accept me as one of their own. I, you know, wrote uh, two or three papers uh, with economic history data, and I, uh -huh. I uh, like economic history a lot. Um, but um, I haven't been doing that uh, yeah. for like three, four years. So okay, okay, okay. But you, have I, I don't, I don't have like a very strong, I think, uh, you know, say coursework background in his economic history, so to yeah. speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so you, so what kind of kid, what kind of student were you in high school? What was your high school experience like? Um, what I so, so I went to a very. Um, very special high school in a way, uh, which was uh, so in, in Poland at the high school level, you no longer have to be um, admitted in every single place, uh, public high school that you uh, that, that is local to you, as it would be at the primary or secondary school level. It's really like everything is you know, grades based, like you sort of graduate primary or secondary school, and then uh, you apply to places and they, you know, accept you or not accept you based on your grades and stuff. So I went to a place that was uh, considered, uh, you know, one of the best high schools in the whole country, definitely the best in southern Poland. Mm -hmm. And I honestly had a mixed experience because I uh -huh. felt, you know, Parts of it didn't really uh, live up to the fame. Uh, I mm. think there was like a lot of, I think now I know the language. I think uh, a big part of this was sort of selection bias that um, they were basically accepting students with best grades in secondary school. And then they could produce great outcomes at uh, graduation level 
at graduation uh, stage, which doesn't, however, mean that the value added was so high. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be critical too much because, you know, I mean, this is going to be public, and uh, sure. I don't want to, you know, no, no, uh, I get it. Sound like I'm, I'm, I'm critical or anything, but it, it had many great things about it, and you know, I mean, one, great things were it, like it really allowed you to be. Um, um independent and you know choose choose your own path and uh do kind of what you want to do it wasn't forcing you to be good in everything if you had like a passion or something uh you could focus on that because i think the, the part of the, the, the school's agenda was it was trying to produce a lot of like laureates of uh i don't think that's something that the us has but poland does um like um national and national olympiads I think, you know, math, international math Olympiad is something that I think is very famous. So like, for example, in my section, we would have one laureate of the international math Olympiad. And the expectation was in my high school that you would like produce some in every cohort, basically. Oh, wow. It was the kind of students who were kind of admitting and it was like, you know, uh, uh, that was the expectation. But I was kind of like I was trying to go always in the opposite direction from the, from the crowd. So I instead of, you know, I had like a class with a math focus and I learned a lot of um, you know math at good level for, for 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 high school, but I didn't want to specialize in it too much, given that everybody else around me was specializing in it. So mm. I went more in the direction of um, um, you know geography, um, political science, um, and I, even literature. Mm. Um, uh, but then having this this math background all the time, meaning that you know uh, it, it it didn't. Uh, lose contact with that at all. Oh, I and, see. Um, that was the background. That was it. The high school yeah. was basically uh, the these these future top mathematicians were coming out of your, or they were like it was constantly producing these people that would go into the math Olympics. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You, and so you lived inside that that kind of that kind of rich mathematical environment throughout high school, but you were you ended up kind of focusing on other kinds of stuff. Exactly. I mean, and I think I think part of that was like my my sort of in retrospect, when I think about where I am now, I feel like it would have been better to devote some of the time I devoted to other things to uh, doing even more math. Uh, I think that's in retrospect, uh, probably would have been the, the, the best choice. But I really had this uh, like strong um, so, so, something something about me, I think, when I was younger, maybe still today that. If I see everybody doing this one thing, I just can't do can't mm. do the same thing that everybody's everybody's do, everybody around me is doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I, I and and in in Poland, I think I don't know how it works in the US, but in, you have these sections like high school, like classes divided into sections of around thirty people, and you take all the classes together. In the high school level, you actually choose at the beginning of high school in what you're going to specialize. So my 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 class was specifically math and computer science. Um, and this is why, you know, you really had mostly uh, people um, um, with with that with that interest around. Well, so what when you were in high school, what were did you ever did did you ever uh, kind of have uh, any idea of sort of like well what you did want to to make your your life be about was econ something that you'd even heard of? Um, I mean. <laughs> Yes. And part of the, I mean, I didn't, I didn't definitely didn't think I would be an academic that I definitely didn't think in high school. Um, one thing you, 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 one has to be aware of when, you, when, 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 when we, we, we talk about 
context in Poland, I think much of Europe actually, is that uh, you have to choose your major right. uh, before you apply to college. Yeah. Uh, you don't just get admitted by university and then you just, you know, shop around, take classes and think, you know, re decide what you're passionate about. Right. You pick you pick your major uh, when you apply. And for example, you can, I don't know, um, apply to, I don't know, the history um, um, major at the University of Walsh and then Econ and be accepted at history, but not at Econ. And that's it. And after you've accepted it in history and not Econ, you cannot study Econ anymore. Um, so, um, I didn't have to choose economics, uh, or, you know, something related to economics, more broadly, finance, school. whatever in high school. Mm. And the reason I did was that I knew I was, um, you know, had this pretty strong math background, but I also was more interested in sort of like, I don't know, you could say like human things, so to speak. I never liked physics at all. Mm. And um, I didn't really want to study computer science. Um, so it seemed like the best compromise in which you, I was kind of aware that you need to have some math tools. I don't know why I thought that as a high right. school student, yeah. how I knew. Uh, but I also knew that, okay, I'm going to be dealing with, you know, humans rather than particles and that was definitely um you know uh, something important to me at the time would you have thought of social science or was it more like because you even said literature and your dad's a historian was it more of just you were interested in people or was it the social science part that you were interested in or was it neither of those i think social science for sure uh but then i kind of felt that so even though even though um um my dad was a historian, is a historian, um, I kind of always felt I probably, you know, understood like math-based arguments better than um, say, like, I don't know, something um, much more, um, I don't know, like I didn't always follow um, arguments made, made, made in um, in the humanities as well as, as something that is more math-based. So I felt like if it's sociology and if it's more like qualitative, I didn't feel like um, I, I always really understood the argument as well as I would. Uh, but again, again, we're talking high school right now. So how, how did I know in high school? I don't know. I, I, I mm. this is... This is difficult. Later on, in 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 college, I kind of felt uh, when we're you know uh, taking some classes in sociology um, that I understood you know economics papers much better than um, like a much more you know windy so to speak. Uh, I don't know if that's a, that's, a, that's a proper word in English. Argument in 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 some some sociology texts. Yeah, sure, sure. No, I get it. Uh, or I think I do. So you, you go to college, but you don't go to the, so I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of like piecing together some of these stories you're saying. So you, you, you live in a beautiful part of Poland that's got a very historic university and, and a lot of your friends go there, but you decide to go somewhere else. You don't go, you're not like with a, with a friend or a pack of people. You, you go to college and you don't know anyone. Is that right? That is right. Uh, that is right. Uh, I mean, um, you know, um, 
my my uh, classmates in high school wouldn't go um, study economics anyway. So it's not like I had this choice of going with a big group of people. That was something that was kind of not happening anyway. Uh-huh. Um, so it, it would have meant staying in the same city and that would be a big plus. But after having chosen economics, I knew, and, and I think it's a fact and I think it's, it's, it's still the case that if you study economics in Poland, it's, it's got to be also. I think mm. I think it's really the case that like I, I I don't you know regret this decision you know one second uh, for for educational I think for for quality of education I think it was a much better choice and also I think um, you know I just felt around the time that probably eighteen nineteen is you know a better time to uh, just you know leave home than than a couple of years later and I think. You know the typical student culture, or you know, in 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 Poland would be like if you go to college in uh, the university you in 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 the city you live in, where your parents live, you mm-hmm. live with your parents throughout college. And I kind of felt like, yeah, when I'm I don't know twenty three, twenty four or something, that's a little bit too late. I want to go to college on my own and like live on my own in in a dorm, right? Um, and and that's what I did. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking. Uh... Cause I guess I was just imagining my mind. It, I don't, again, I don't want to put words, but it sounds like you're saying you, you also have a, it sounds like you also said, even from a little, being a little kid, you, you sort of needed to do your own thing. Yeah. You definitely. kind of expressed it a little bit in terms of this non-conformant, non-conforming tendency. But another way, I guess I'm here and also wondering is, you know, you're, you're wanting to do your own thing, not just simply do what other people are doing. Is that right? No, definitely. I mean, I think I think it's probably still true, but I think definitely when I was a teenager, it was like a huge part of me, yes. I think mm. Was your dad like that? Were your mom and dad like that? I think they're both like that in different huh. ways, but I think they're both like that. Huh. That's cool. I'm wondering now, now I'm just thinking about your papers. So, so you go to college. <laughs> So what was college like? What was it like there? Uh, it was very good. I think, you know, um, I, I um, you know, it's different than the U.S. because you take tons and tons and tons of classes. And uh, it's not like you take, I don't know, four per semester. You you take more and then oh. it's less of an expectation that you uh, study regularly. Mm. Um, you mostly spent most of your, you know, um, uh, most of your studying time is sort of close to the, you know, final exams because there is, you know, in many classes, no midterms, no anything, there's just a final exam just at the, the end final. and you, right. you, you, you pass, you fail. Um, and you know, there's many students. So like, it's not like you get a lot of personal attention. I mean, I, you know, you can towards like, you know, the end of like when you sort of get some, you know, maybe mentors among faculty and whatnot. But like early on, at least it's like a many, many students. Like, I mean, you know, I didn't, wasn't ever a student like having an undergraduate experience in a big public university in the US, but I imagine it may be similar. Like you have big, big classes, right? And it's just impossible to get a lot of personal attention and you like, yeah. Uh, so I think a bit, but the, the advantage was um, you take so many classes, so you you hear about many many different things. I definitely knew something about many things when I was graduating, which you know, um, 
is good. I mean, I don't know um, how deep uh, some of that was, but but I definitely took like you know many classes, like uh, the number of um, I don't know upper level elective equivalents um, I would have taken by the time I graduated was much much bigger than. I see among my students at Brandeis, for example, mm. meaning, you know, you wouldn't just take, I don't know, one class in labor, it would be like, you know, labor and then public and then I don't know, like a couple of, you know, math classes and, uh, you know, many more than, than you know, uh, would be expected here in the US. So, um, you know, and then economic sociology and then, you know, some classes in in politics and whatnot. So a many, much broader um, array of topics, I think. Okay. Okay. Well, so did you take any econometrics when you were in college? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I was separate classes and, you know, a time series later on and a separate class and panel data and a sub, separate class and applied econometrics in a separate class and really? like microeconometrics. Yeah, 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 yeah. They had all that for the undergraduates. They did. Wow. That's not common. We, I thought we had a lot at Baylor. We don't have anything that's like that. Is that, did you, that's not common, right? I think in Poland it would be because as I'm saying, the expectation is that you take, you know, uh, I don't know. I think I was taking probably, um, six, I don't remember actually, six, eight classes per semester, right? So you have yeah. to fill it so with you something. You have to fill them out. Sure, sure. The professors. Huh. So and then I think, I think, and then the department, so I think, um, you know, the, I, I don't know the numbers right now, but I think I could, you know, I mean, it would be easy to check. I think the number of professors in the economics department, University of Warsaw is probably much larger than at say the University of Michigan, which is a super large public university in the US. Mm, oh, it's bigger. Uh, it's bigger. Wow. I think it's, it's, oh, it's clearly bigger. Huh? Okay. Right. So, so did you, did did econometrics kind of grab you or was like all of these you're taking so many classes no it did not no, grab you. it okay. did not what before did i graduated from also it did not i think labor labor did ah okay okay what about labor what was it about labor that you liked so much uh, well, I wrote my master's thesis, which is obligatory in Poland, or at least was when I was ah. uh, was graduating. I had to write something. Yeah. Uh, I wrote on um, gender wage discrimination in Poland, and that started oh, my interest did. in decompositions, which which I know that you know about. Yes. Oh, that's where it comes from. Decompositions. Yeah. Interest in decompositions began to me in like late undergrad. Yes. Okay. I don't want to. I want us to build that. That's where I was wondering. Okay, so that's where it's coming from. You were working on decompositions as a, and you wrote your master's thesis on Awaxa blinder kind of decomposition stuff, or no, not that. I mean, just applying them to data, to data, uh, right. to data in Poland. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. thinking about methods much. I mean, I tried to understand them as best I, as I could as, oh. as 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 a as a college student. But yes, I mean, it was a, it was a dissertation on wage discrimination in Poland. Oh my gosh! Okay. All right, so you you graduate college. Do you immediately in college are you thinking I want to become an, a a, uh, an, a an a a PhD economist? Is that something that you're thinking in college? I think I was, but I don't remember exactly what was my uh, you know more specific plan, so to speak. So um, I think 
back in the day in Poland, it was very common that, you know, you uh, do your PhD, you are um, a PhD student, but uh, you don't have that much intensive coursework as you would in the US. Yeah. And the stipends are super low and many people would, you know, work even full time, uh, I don't know, uh, in a bank or in a government ministry doing their PhDs. So I I probably wasn't thinking as a college student about this like path that you take when you think about doing a PhD in the US in a, in a good department that you um, devote to this full time. I was probably thinking about juggling this with, um, with uh, you know, I don't know, maybe working in, in some policy job or something like that. That I probably did. I, I was thinking about getting a PhD, but I don't know if I was really seriously thinking about trying to do uh, good research for the sake of doing good research or whether it was more like something to be combined with, you know, um, other things. Oh, so the PhD plans. was kind of a, is kind is a little, was, was sort of a normal path that you might end up taking. It wasn't like this for me, getting a PhD was like, I'd literally never met anybody that had ever gotten a PhD. So except for teachers. So, but it, it wasn't in my, my set of friends or anything, something that we would have done so that, but it was kind of like you graduate college and, and the idea of getting a PhD doesn't sound all that, uh well it, i think i think it depends so i it, it's it's definitely part of that was like peer effects i mean i had you know two um like uh group of groups of friends um in in college i think i mean probably oversimplifying but like to the extent that we oversimplify that one group was people who were um interested in in economics in my college and most of the many of them most of them were thinking about getting a phd and from that group from people who i was friends with in college i think you know you would easily probably count you know 10 people having gotten a phd and most of them actually not in poland but actually you know in many good places uh, abroad most of them in europe like uh, in amsterdam say or uh, or florence the european university institute but like you know there was a big stream of people from my college going to the University of Minnesota for a PhD, mostly doing macro. So, um, you know, there was a, there was one group. So we talked about getting a PhD. We talked about research as, you know, college students, you know, third year, yeah. fourth year college. Another group was people who were uh, specifically interested in research, but like across different disciplines. It was kind of like a, you know, student society that wasn't affiliated with my college. And most of these people by now, I think, have a PhD. So mm. I have... I have like many, many PhD friends from college. Oh, you do very many in, in economics. Um, many of them in economics, yes, but oh. like others, like in you know, in, in history, sociology, uh, literature, many different oh. fields. That's cool. So, so you go. So, do you go immediately into grad to to get your PhD? That's an in. The so I, I, my, my fourth year of of college, I applied to a bunch of master's programs in the UK. Yeah. And uh, the one that um, both accepted me and gave me a scholarship that made this, uh, you know, more uh, doable was Cambridge. So I went to Cambridge UK mm -hmm. uh, for a master's. And the deal with the scholarship was that like, if I 
um you know get like sufficiently good grades and then uh continue want to continue i can continue this was, this was partial funding so I probably i would probably probably needed to have to to, to get something something more to to to, to live um, and then i went there but i actually wasn't i think when starting there i wasn't really thinking i don't know why i it's it's difficult i I can't really say precisely why that was that I wasn't really thinking that much about staying. I was thinking more about, you know, returning to Poland, which I did eventually. Um, and then, you know, I thought that like with a degree from Cambridge, it definitely has a very, very strong brand in Poland, probably more so than in the US. So I felt like, okay, this would look cool that, you know, I graduated from Cambridge. I'm going to go back um, and, you know, just, just, just be, just be in Warsaw, I think. Um mm -hmm. Um and yeah, I mean that's that's what, Wait, what so happened. Where, so, so where do you end up doing your doctorate? Where is it? Well, my 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 PhD is from the same institution. I graduated college, which is oh, also School of Economics. Okay, okay. All right. So you go back there, so you go you go to Cambridge, you write your master's thesis, you go back to your you go back to where you did your, your bachelor's. How long were you in the program in the, the PhD program? Uh so I uh, defended my PhD at the end of my fourth year. Oh, you defended it in four years? Yep. Wow. So was was it, a, did you specialize in econometrics while you were, did you feel, were you making a decision that you wanted to become an econometrician? So, uh, so that's, that's something um, I actually decided that's, 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 the, that's probably the funniest part of, 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 of this, this whole story, which is that I only decided that I wanted to do research in econometrics after um you know having um like uh, gotten some research ideas um in econometrics taking a class at cambridge uh -huh. even though at the time when i was taking that class i wasn't thinking i would specialize in econometrics so that class i think there's one class that you know definitely changed my professional life uh, was a class with uh, an applied microeconomist called Tom Crossley. So he is uh, mm. now a professor in Florence, the European University Institute. Mm -hmm. But at the time he was a uh, reader, so, you know, associate professor in, in U.S. language at the University of Cambridge. And he was teaching a class in uh, like this trimester from January to March um, on, I think it was called Topics in Applied Microeconomics. Mm. And even though topics in applied microeconomics, you know, that can be pretty much anything, it had like two components. I think 75 to 80% was basically uh, causal inference, oh, uh, potential outcomes and stuff like, you know, uh, regression, uh, IV, uh, regression discontinuity, diff and diff. Uh, and then I think the last small chunk was something that I think was and maybe still is uh, his research specialty, which is... Uh, demand systems oh um so that's that's what the class was about and i was taking that class and you know like the idea of um you know potential outcomes the uh rubin causal model um you know the uh, lalonde de higienwache papers yeah which we discussed the was like at that time probably you know the, the most interesting thing Research-wise, I had ever heard about it was to me it was really super fascinating. And and uh, then you know a few weeks into the class, I realized about something that wasn't 
really well understood at the time. You know, in retrospect, I realized that this isn't like a, you know, um, kind of world-changing result or anything. But at the time, I was obviously super excited. The, the connection between, um, um, you know, regression, regression adjustment, and decomposition. So thinking about you know what's 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 the exact connections between Oaxaca blinded decompositions and uh, um, you know estimating treatment effects and unconfoundedness. You were that's, thinking that's, about this in grad school. I was thinking about that in the master's program. I was taking this class with 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 Tom Crossley in, that, in Cambridge. Wait, the I thought the master's was at Cambridge. It was. Oh wait, but then I thought you were talking about right now the the doctorate. Yeah, but then I mean the master's was one year, so I right, you know came back to 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 Walsh, and then yes, I was you, doing. So wait, where was Crossley topic. at? Where was he at Cambridge? Cambridge, yeah, oh, yeah, it was Cambridge. Oh, got it. Okay, so at so this was that's where you were learning the potential outcomes, and that's when you yes. started to see this connect. I see. Okay, so you were thinking, so you were thinking in the master's program about regression adjustment. And the Waxablinder decompositions as an causal inference estimator in the yes. program. So I was yes, 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 yes. I was, I was. It was just so that I'm, you know, uh, just so I understand. Because tell tell me if I'm wrong on this, Taman. So my understanding is that this is relatively new. Is that right? This connection between Awaxa blinder as a uh, a technique for studying labor market discrimination going back to the 70s and these decomposition methods that even go back to the 50s. And so, and, you know, fast forward, estimating the average treatment on the treated using regression adjustment. And my my overall sense of the literature is like, it's like, it, it's like, it, it's relatively newer. And so you were sort of, thinking about it as regression adjustment as an estimator at the very beginning of when people even were thinking of it as an estimator is that accurate roughly speaking i think time-wise it's it's similar time i think you know the you know if you're very peculiar about things you can probably find some footnotes which i did find when i was doing a very detailed literature review like in i don't know like late um I mean, you know, two, three years maybe before before my master's, but it's kind of like, you know, if you really understand the topic very well, you probably understand reading the footnote what the person writing the paper also understood, but nobody else would really, you know, infer it from this Who footnote. Who are you talking if, if about? Are you talking about Awaxa? Uh, there is, there is, there is. Um, I think uh, you know, PhD dissertation by an econometrician who was Brown previously. Now he's back in Switzerland called Blaise Melli. Uh -huh. uh, so he has that, I think, in his dissertation. And there is there's some papers. I think by um, could be wrong, but I think Dan Blackenkopf is. Um, I'd have to go back and check in 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 some I of feel my like papers. I probably. The, I want the I want the the listener to to understand. Can you explain just real quickly what it is we're talking about right now? This one or two minute, just sort of like, you know, what is what are decompositions? What is the Awaxa blinder? What does that have to do with causal inference? And then you know, what is it that you're beginning to see in graduate school that's kind of maybe novel? 
Yeah, so uh, the Oaxaca blended decomposition uh, is a technique that um, uh, was developed in beginning in early 1970s, uh, which uh, deals with um, trying to understand uh, discrimination, wage discrimination. And the idea is that you run two separate regressions, a regression of, say, log wages on uh, different characteristics for, um, let's say, male workers and separately for female workers. So you have a two sets of um, uh, coefficients from two wage equations, and then you uh, combine them in some, um, you know, pretty simple ways uh, to get a measure of uh, what we could um, interpret as uh, wage discrimination. You know, recently, uh, you could definitely find some, you know, reasonable critiques of, of, of this approach in many ways. I mean, you know, the obvious one would be well, there's obviously a lot of scope for omitted variables bias. So, yeah. you know, just running descriptive regressions is not something that can get you very far, I think, doing research in applied micro today. But in the day, that was what people were doing. And Let me ask um, real quick, real quick. Yeah, yeah. Why are they doing that? I'm going to be devil's advocate. Why Why is Oaxan Blinder saying do it this way when everybody knows you just, if you want to, look for evidence of racial discrimination with covariates, you just run one regression. You just run log earnings onto a race dummy with a bunch of covariates. Why are you running two of them? What What was the, what exactly uh, was the problem? Because I'm assuming that we're, that this will help us talk a little bit about some stuff that you've written. So uh, if, if you're asking about what exactly was in, you know, Ronald Hackers and Alan Blinder's mind at the time, I'm not exactly sure because I don't remember the details of the motivations of this paper, whether they were talking about heterogeneity or not, because I think the obvious right. answer today would be um, if you uh, estimate these two regressions separately, then the uh, wage gap is going to be potentially different uh, for workers with different characteristics, which makes sense, you know, somewhere uh, at the top of the wage distribution, perhaps the gap between male and female workers' condition characteristics is different than in some low-paying jobs. So that makes a lot of sense. Whether this is uh, why they developed this method, I honestly don't remember. Heterogeneity, uh, though, might have been, but it's not heterogeneity of treatment effects, right? It would have been there, but they're thinking about heterogeneity. So heterogeneity is a, is in the history of this somehow. Heterogeneity differences in the workers is somehow a part of this. It is, it is. But I, I again, I don't, you know, I yeah. cannot speak exactly about like the, like, I don't want to say very clearly about the intellectual history of this that originated because of heterogeneity. I would have to, I would have to go back and check. But then uh, I think, you know, so, so this was, this, this is, this is, this is the method. And then, you know, uh, the like common theme of papers using these decompositions was that, you know, they look up the, um, you know, difference in mean wages between two groups of workers, say, um, men and women, and they say, oh, you know, men earn like 20% more on average uh, mm -hmm. than than women. And then they decompose this single number into uh, two parts. One of them would be referred to as the unexplained component, which is a measure of, you could say, discrimination. Um, and then the other would be the so-called explained component, which basically tells us that part of that could be due to the fact that, I don't know, people work, men and women work in um, different uh, sectors, say, and maybe they have uh, different average job experience and different education. 
And part of that uh, is just due to the fact that they're different. I mean, selection bias, basically, in a way, right? Right. right. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I don't want to... Uh, th this isn't something I probably think right now, you know, has been uh, my my uh, biggest contribution because I think I was really uh, excited at the time. But at the end, of course, it's it's a very simple contribution. If you think about that and, you know, other people uh, did this at the same time as well, was that um, if you think about like a gender dummy uh, in, mm -hmm. in those regressions, it is like treatment. And if you just, you know, in your mind, swap gender and treatment and think about the, uh, you know, estimators that we would use to estimate treatment facts uh, under unconfoundedness, uh, this is literally what these decompositions were about. It's just that for, you know, probably 20 years or so, you know, a few people, a uh, few people realized that. So my, right. my first like idea basically in that master's program was, oh, actually the unexplained component of a Oaxaca blinded decomposition is a treatment facts is a treatment um, estimator. Yeah. You would have it, said it, that because you're fact. at that you're at the, you're at Cambridge. You're with that professor Crossley, and he's teaching you causal inference, and you're going to write your paper. So you were you were just very easily just thinking the unexplained part is a is a treatment effect. It, it it kind of dawned on me, and you know, some random moment. I think many of my best ideas are kind of like. I don't expect that, like, you know, one minute ago it wasn't in my mind and now it's there. And I kind of, I'm like, you know. Um, had your professor thought of it that way? Or is this like a not all that, I mean, is this not a big insight? It Because it now, I mean, to me, it seems like it's, now I'm realizing it is a huge insight. But was it not something that everybody would be like, yeah, it's a treatment fact. We haven't framed it in terms of a, we haven't framed the walk. I guess it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's like, if it is a treatment effect, then the OAXA blinder is an estimator and we hadn't been talking of it and you don't know what parameter it is, right? Well, I think, I think, you know, the, the, the contribution I'm, I'm probably, you know, um, in, in the end, um, I think is, you know, maybe more interesting from that time was that, um, you know, in 1980s, uh, there was a big discussion in this literature on decompositions, like what would be, uh, the most appropriate, as they used to call it, like non-discriminatory weight structure, that basically those decompositions um, assumed that, you know, okay, if there was no discrimination, like how would the workers be paid? Like men are now, or maybe like women are now, or maybe in some different way. Mm -hmm. And um, for every like weight structure like this, you would have a different decomposition with a different... Um, decomposition into the unexplained and explained components. And I think what, what I felt was, um, you know, a, a, a perhaps more interesting uh, insight at the time, I think, was that um, this is literally talking about the choice of the target parameter. Yeah. If your reference weight structure is man, then you're estimating the effect for women. If your reference right. structure is men, you're estimating the effect for women. If it's somewhere in between, you're nearing something like uh, the average treatment fact. And that's my paper in the Industrial and Labor Relations Review, which took many years to publish. So that's why it's you know been published only like three or four years ago. Uh, but that's something that you know was in the works for probably seven or eight years, and uh, did did I rewrote it many times. Did uh. 
how, so I know that there were other writers, Klein, Wooldridge, and you that have talked about this connection with Oaxa blinder as an estimator of uh, of one of these subpopulation causal parameters, the ATT or the ATU, but they call it regression adjustment. Can you just kind of help me understand where what is the history of this regression adjustment then? And then where do you fit into it? Yeah, so um, that I'm a little bit less certain about. I think there is a paper somewhere in the early 1980s by uh, Barno, Kane and Goldberger that... That's that guy um, you just said a minute ago? Or those are the people you said the footnotes? No, 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 that's different. Oh, they, okay. they, there's no connection to Oaxaca Blinder, what I'm saying. I mean, I'm trying to think about what's the origin of, like, you know, linear regression adjustment. And uh -huh. at the same time, I think at the end of the day, like, you know, this procedure eventually is is probably so simple that I would imagine that, you know, maybe people weren't that fighting, that, that fighting all that much about credit for it. So yeah. maybe we just don't know who, who you know, thought about that for the first time. And, you know, maybe a few people uh, did, did care about it. It's but, weird so that it's, it's so simple. And I've literally never seen anyone do it. And, you know, and then you and I have exchanged so much. And then I've gone through these simulations and then, uh, you know, we're going to talk about your work. It's it's incredibly problematic if you don't do it right. So many of that, so many simple quote, simple ordinary least squares regression with covariates are not identifying what people think they are. So it's funny that it is very simple. Why is it not commonly done? I, I, and I, I worry a little bit that the listeners aren't following what we're talking about. Can you can you tell me just a little bit about what exactly is the regression adjustment estimator and why is it needed and versus what people are usually doing? Yeah, so, so regression adjustment um, in the context of treatment effects is literally... Um, uh, you know, the same thing that that Oaxaca blended decompositions, I just swap, you know, men and women or black workers and white workers for, uh, you know, treated units and untreated units. So you have an outcome of interest and you run a regression of that outcome on uh, covariates for the treated guys and then um, separately for the untreated guys. From both regressions, you compute uh, fitted values, but not just for your estimation sample, but uh, for the entire sample, including uh, people in the other treatment regime. And then basically what that means is that you're using uh, the estimated coefficients from uh, the treated guys to impute what the untreated guys would have gotten had they been treated and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So uh, from these two regressions, you have uh, two sets of fitted values, not just you know, for, for somebody, for everybody, for all units in your sample, be they treated or untreated. And then uh, you have those uh, two sets of fitted values. Uh, the difference between them for any given individual uh, is going to be your estimate of the conditional average treatment effect, the mm -hmm. average effect of treatment for individuals with that specific set of uh, characteristics, of that specific value of the covariate vector. And then you have a choice of what uh, target parameter you're eventually interested in. If it's the average treatment fact, you, your, your estimator is going to be the sample mean of the difference in fitted values for the whole sample. If you're estimating the ATT, it's going to be uh, averaged only across the treated guys. 
And um, this is very similar to the procedure that you know most researchers would um, would use in uh, you know contexts where they're willing to assume unconfoundedness, which is they would just run a single regression of the outcome on the same covariates you would implicitly use in this regression adjustment procedure. But then um, there would just be a treatment dummy included as as a covariate in this regression. Yeah, and um, you know we we know that there's this influential paper by Angus in Econometrica in 1998 that if you do that and if you assume that the propensity score is linear and covariates, which by the way is also a potentially controversial assumption, and does this paper. Um, you know, technically speaking on IV, but the special case is to OLS by Bland, Hoboni, Moxat, and Togovitsky on IV that they kind of, you know, very strongly um, return uh, to the message that this assumption is necessary. And if it's not satisfied, then uh, this whole business of interpreting the OLS uh, estimate as a weighted average treatment thing doesn't work. But returning to Angrist, he showed that if you just run a single regression of a treatment dummy, you get a weighted average of um, uh, treatment facts with weights that are proportional to the variance of treatment. Mm -hmm. So cells where you have roughly speaking 50% treated, 50% untreated guys are going to be more highly weighted because that's where you can estimate the treatment facts more efficiently. And OLS is going to be, you know, eventually um, like the, it, it, it has a method that does care implicitly about efficiency, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think my um, probably best published paper so far, which which was published uh, last year in the Review of Economics and Statistics, is another take on, on Angus 1998. Mm. And uh, it's the first paper that um, I think has been written that represents the very same estimate from that regression where you include the treatment dummy just uh, on it. It's not interacted with, with the covariates. There's no two separate regressions. It's just a single dummy included as control. Mm -hmm. um, it's the first paper, I think, that uh, represents that OLS estimate as a weighted average of not, you know, treatment facts at all the different covariate vectors. There are very many. You can't really keep track of them uh, in most applications uh, uh, and, you know, if covariates are indiscrete, uh, it's not even obvious how even to estimate the weights. Um, so um, I represent it as a weighted average of ATT and ATU, the effect on the treated and on the untreated. And, you know, the punchline of that paper is that the weights are roughly speaking reversed. So the more units get treatment, uh, the smaller is going to be the OLS weight on the effect on the treated. Mm. And that means that we are probably fine running those simple regressions if the proportion of units in both treatment arms is roughly the same. If it's around 50%, 50%, probably shouldn't be bothered too much. But if uh, you know those proportions are very disparate, um, then you might not be getting what you think you are. And you're definitely you know, not getting the ATE. It's funny the way you said that just then. I, because, and I know that you say that, by the way, the readers, the listeners, I think that this paper by Tim in, in Review of Economics and Statistics last year is extremely important. I I, I sort of feel like uh, it's the it's one of the more important papers I've seen because um, uh, thank you. <laughs> well, because the, here's why: it's like most people in the planet, if they're going to be claiming something is causal and they haven't run a randomized experiment, what have they done? They ran a regression with controls. That's it. 
because they've had most people now there's, there's a decent amount of regression, basic regression literacy in the world. And so, you know, people run regressions and they put in controls and the idea that the regression, even under unconfoundedness is not get, is not an unbiased estimate of the parameters that you probably think is, you know, there, there probably can't be a more, you know, important thing to say about what exactly most people are doing. But what I thought was really interesting, well, there's a couple of things about that paper, even the way that you said it just then, I would think as a normal person, not an econometrician, but as a normal person, when I read this paper and I realize that the, the, the typical OLS regression, regress Y onto treatment dummy with covariates, is not giving me an unbiased estimate of the causal effect, even when there are no omitted variables. I would think the solution, the, the advice would say, hey, don't, don't do it. But you said, well, if it's 50-50, it's probably not a big deal. But the thing is, if it's 50-50, it's still, it's still biased. Or it can be, depending on the, 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 the amount of heterogeneity in the, the data generating process, right? It's true. No, of course it's true. Uh, but um, I also, um, you know, um, I mean, we just have so many other things. It's like, you know, what? Why? Why say that? Why? Why not just say, you know, the assumptions needed here are constant treatment effects. And last I checked, nobody likes to assume that because you don't know anything about those treatment effects. So why are you assuming it? Just use a robust estimator. No, I look. I one hundred percent agree. I think there is there, there's probably you know um, a question of how best to write a paper, and I don't exactly remember at what point of you know it's it's sort totally. of work on that. This this advice um, you know showed up in the paper, but I think you know the the question is like um, you know how negative you want your paper to sound, whether you know you want to write a paper that sort of, you know, also, um, I don't know, um, give some more constructive yeah, no, advice, I, I totally so to speak, meaning, totally yeah. meaning, so I think, I think, you know, um, like when, when I was, when I was working on this, this project, the very beginning, and it also took uh, a couple of years until I reached uh, like a stage where it, it was a well-written paper. I was, you know, learning, um, you know, many things um, on my own in Wales, although I think, you know, I stayed for a Fulbright at Michigan State with Jeff Woodridge also speaking to, you know, many uh, great labor people there like Gary Solom, Elder, Steve Hyder. So uh, it definitely helped me develop the, the, the argument uh, yeah. in, in, in this paper back then. But I, I kind of had a couple of reactions before my stay at Michigan State then that people would... Um, um, approach this this result saying yeah i mean we we knew that like of course OLS assumes constant treatment effects what's new here i think and and there was like you have to understand that um that different sort of you know groups so to speak in the profession and to mm -hmm. some um it would be obvious that if you write a paper in you know 2010 2020 that relies implicitly or explicitly on confoundedness. You are going to run a simple 
um, regression with no interactions, which is what yeah. my paper implicitly criticizes. But you would be surprised to find that there are you know, very smart people also who are either unaware of that maybe or yeah. you know don't seem to care who would like you know come from the point of view of you know sort of theoretical econometrics so to speak and say you know of course this method is ridiculous like you should use you know one of the non good like good non-parametric approaches that we have and that we know works well on paper at least mm -hmm. and why would anybody ever you know use this method of course it's wrong this is nothing new to us yeah so, so I think you know I was trying to balance, I guess you know this uh, the, the fact I that, that like yeah no I'm not criticizing sorry I did not mean to to no 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 I didn't take it literally the and you can't here, here's the th by the way I I also would just like and I'm not just saying this you're it even comes across in this interview and it comes across in the our email exchanges but it definitely comes across in your writing you, you've got such a nice each sentence is just so obviously well crafted. Like I, I just can tell from reading this restat and from others, how much work you went into getting these sentences so nice. I mean, you must be, you must work so hard on just revising and getting it very carefully worded. Is that right? My previous. No, no, I, 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 um, I often feel across. like I'm, I'm super, you know, inefficient in revising papers because it takes me so much time to rewrite anything. But if if it pays any dividends, I'm really, I mean, it it, it won't feel any more like time wasted because sometimes it does. Sometimes I feel it like- It is only nine pages. This restat is only nine pages and it is just so readable, so deep. Paragraphs are just very artistically written. I mean, you've got- You've wow, got paragraphs thanks. in here. This one paragraph, I'm not trying to embarrass you, but this one paragraph here, uh, I say this all the time to people. And when I give these lectures, where is it? Uh, you say, to aid intuition for this surprising result, rec recall that an important motivation for using the model in equation one, the equation one is uh, regress, Y onto treatment plus covariance. So just the standard regression. The motivation for using it uh, in equation one uh, is that OLS for an OLS is that the OLS is that the linear projection of Y onto DNX provides the best linear predictor of Y given DNX, Angerson Pischke. However, this is the part I love. However, if our goal is to conduct causal inference, then this bis, you know, being the best linear predictor then this is not, in fact, a good reason to use this method. Ordinary least squares is, quote, best in predicting actual outcomes, but causal inference is about predicting missing outcomes. It's beautiful. It really is. <laughs> but it's just such a, I mean, I just read that, and I think he worked at that, at those four sentences for a while to get that right. Well, I was very glad that, uh, you know, nobody complained about, um, you know, this sentence and, you know, said that they disagree with the intuition or something and, you know, um, that I should um, drop it or whatever, because I, I kind of felt that this just really helped my way of thinking about that. Totally. But it's, 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 it's uh, I was, I was, you know, worried that it could be pushbacks but you know well, it's, you know, it's, uh... it's really nice i think it's a really great four sentences in a general it's really the it's the general description of causal inference which is you know 
causal inference is is uh, it really how I really think it defends OLS because what it says is OLS is best at predicting its targets, and this is not its targets in causal inference. The target in causal inference is a target parameter, a causal parameter, not the outcome. And it's really, it's just such a great, so, so, you know, I, th this, this restat, the, the thing that I think is so interesting about it is that it, this is a result you go through, there's a few papers you go through and just to kind of set this up, the, the, you could have a study, two studies could, could be studying uh, labor market discrimination or something, or, you know, some, some program, some returns to, uh, education or some program on labor market discrimination. And in one study, it's like the exact same identical, two different people, same identical program that they're evaluating. But in one of them, in one of them, the uh, treatment group has 25% of the samples in the treatment group. And then the other, it's 75%. But otherwise, it appears like it should be the same. It's the same. And they can find the OLS model will be it'll be closer to the smallest group that you're studying, right? That that coefficient that you're estimating will not be closest to the average treatment. In fact, it gets pulled away. It gets pulled towards the tiny groups. Is that right? Yes. I mean, so if you if you um have a program in which 25% of um, units are treated. Um, the expectation based on my paper, and this is this is a rule of thumb, this isn't like the exact uh, result from the paper, the, the exact result, I mean, also depends on the, the condition of variance, the propensity score, but right. um, if you have 25% of individuals treated, you would expect that what you get is 75% times the effect on the treated times 25% the effect on the untreated. Um, which, which yes, does reverse uh, the weights you would like to see if you're asking. You would even expect to see, right? It's almost like the common sense with OLS is like, well, most of the sample is this other group, so probably this estimate is mostly that other group. And you're saying, I, I, I totally actually, yes. it's like that's right. It's that's actually the opposite. That that's the what the paper says. Thing, and it is exactly wrong. It's does OLS goes in the other direction. That that's exactly what the paper says, and I think yeah. that's that's when I when I first realized that um, you know sitting that cannot be common sense. It's like you know that no no, no way not. that is common sense to anyone. No one knew that. Um, one one exception. I present really? this paper. So this is this is a funny story. Uh, and when you know um, when I told this to uh, Jeff Woodridge, he said he that. He totally wasn't surprised that this was the one person he gave he gave another suggestion who could do the same but then they didn't when i presented in front of them so i present when i was going on the market um i had a, a call for uh Arnold Devani, he's now at warwick um and he was a grad student at university college london and i kind of you know asked him whether there would be any chance you know if i just you know pay for my own trip to London, just visit and hang out to present this Are you about to say Blundell? seminar. Blundell knew? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I present knew, this. I knew I, you were going to say that. I present this in front of a, like many PhD students, a yep. couple of faculty from, from, yes. from UCL. I, know. I present this and then Richard Blundell uh, yep. tells me an explanation of why this is obvious, which yep. I had never thought about which I wasn't exactly able to follow when he spoke it. 
uh -huh. during during my own presentation of my own paper. <laughs> and this was like this was a moment I thought, okay, um, I'm, I'm, you know, this is obvious. I'm never going to get a job or whatever. <laughs> I mean, I had a job, so it wasn't it wasn't uh, a problem. But I knew I was going on the you know uh, U.S. job market. Yeah. But then you know, uh, Jeff convinced me. No, 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 don't worry. I and it wasn't obvious. I got to see the Substack I wrote uh, yesterday about the called the two waves of difference and differences. And I like went through this huge, gigantic waste of, I mean, probably a waste only, I feel like only a couple of people would even care about trying to figure out when certain words started getting used with different diff papers. And I like traced it down and um, Bloomdale in the nineties was just so on top of every single little detail. I, I, I just could not believe how, so early on, he is just magnificent. He is just so deeply, uh, I mean, I just, I've got to, you know, so that I am not remotely surprised, but that's not common. No, I, no, no, no. Nobody <laughs> else knows it. People like that say that stuff and then it makes everybody else in the room go, oh yeah, it is. And it's not obvious. Most no, so I was, I was, I was lucky. It never happened again. And I think no. I mean, I, I honestly. <laughs> and then you know, I mean, you know, um, I, I, I don't think uh, he would mind uh, me saying that. So you know, uh, when when Jeff Woodridge was telling me, don't worry about it. You know, he did say it hadn't be obvious to me. So so that was one thing. But also, I think um, you know, it, it, he made it clear that he doesn't think. The you know many other people like like well, it must know, like be Richard something Lindell. with a particular way of thinking then what 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 is it about his way of thinking about ordinarily squares that would have made that so demonstrably obvious that to someone else just as skilled that it's not is what's the difference I mean you're asking a speculator about a person's mind but is there something that is there something about certain people that would see those implicit weights within ordinarily squares that other people, you know, when I learned OLS, we didn't learn anything about weights. I mean, it's the thing I don't remember. It was always just kind of like exogeneity and, you know, Gauss Markov and all these kinds of things that we would learn that didn't lead me into this world of thinking in terms of the implicit weights within any of these regression models. But I, I mean, I didn't, I'm not an econometrician, so I don't, you know, I've had to learn it later. No, I, I I don't really. Uh, I'm not really sure what was the reason uh, yeah. that um, you know Richard was was singled out as as a person who w could do this. I think you know it could be as a percep like perception that you know people might have that you know who's sort of like has this uh, you know super sharp mind for thinking on the spot. I felt it was more about this about like being able to see things immediately in seminars rather than something particularly specific about the topic but but you know i wait wait okay why did you come up with this idea that's maybe i should ask that where did this come from this came from the work you were doing on the awaxa blinder yes it did yes i, I was thinking uh, that. so okay. so it was um it came from um from a proof in in one paper i was reading that was dealing entirely with uh Oaxaca blinded decompositions um, and doing some algebra with them. Mm. Um, uh, what, but the, the paper wasn't making any connections to potential outcomes. And I think at the time, the authors of that paper weren't aware of that connection, as most people were not at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, 
sort of, I had already known about the sort of, you know, average treatment effect interpretation of all those different, you know, peculiar decompositions they were working with in that paper. And I understood what the interpretation would be uh, in the context of treatment facts. Yeah. And then I kind of, you know, the sort of when I thought about the algebra that they showed and connected this to the stuff that they didn't know and I did, it was like the original idea was immediate. There was a lot of work, um, you know, needed to be added about the actual assumptions that, you know, came into place or how to deal with, uh, you know, multiple covariates because the paper was originally about a single covariate that assumed that there is only one uh, scalar X, wasn't like a covariate vector. So, uh, but basically there was, a, there was, that's what I said about the compositions earlier. Like there was one minute in my life where the beginning of that minute, I didn't know this thing about uh, OLS. And then at the end of that minute, I kind of felt, okay, I just discovered something. Yeah. Uh, something, something really remarkable. And I think, so this is one thing, you know, I kind of like, you know, with time passing, I understand that, you know, few people today, do research using decompositions anymore and i'm not sort of selling these results on decompositions the earlier ones is super important although i you know put a lot of effort in these papers and i i really uh did enjoy writing them but this 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 result on regression i'm i'm definitely very proud of so i, uh, I um, well i mean I, I, a lot. I think it is uh extremely important uh, result and uh you know it's changed it's really changed it's it's left a pretty deep dent in my brain and and i'll go <laughs> through this simulation that i've created with friends uh you know phds from harvard or you know just and, that, and they'll be just watching and they go and, the, and this guy told me because i just feel like you just uh made me uh realize everything i got my phd in is wrong so it's like it was just this guy <laughs> like you know, and I was, and I just was like, I'm telling you here, I send the, my do file to people and I go, just look at it. Well, I need to, I need to let you go. Um, it has been so nice talking. Uh, and, um, so it's such a delight. I hope that we can, we can talk some more, uh, soon in person. Yes, definitely. I mean, I really enjoyed that. And, you know, I, I hope that, um, I didn't, you know, come across as sort of, you know, too, randomly rambling about things but but no, i enjoyed it a lot and it's 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 a big it's a big pleasure thank it's you it's a wonder it's wonderful it's so nice to meet in person well i i'm looking forward to us talking some more in the future uh me as well thank you so much thanks okay. again you gotta see it.